Folklore. Reflections from a range of authors, journalists, civic leaders, historians and generally interesting people exploring the importance of the written word, the value of a library and their own inspirations and motivations. Based in RSE Connolly, the James Connolly Visitor Centre, Belfast. Jadeev Agus Fulcher Rashig Glor, Eglorlan E. Connolly. You're very welcome to the third episode in our series based here in Lorlan E. Connolly um, in the James Connolly Visitor Centre on the Falls Road. I'm delighted to welcome this week's guest, uh, Gilgor um, Augusfaro Walia Clea Tanish and Achoni Amal Farshja. Dr. Michael Pierce is a proud dub, now living in Belfast and teaching in Queen's University in the School of English, Arts and Languages. A graduate of Trinity College Dublin, Michael has focused much of his studies um, on the working class communities of Ireland and in particular on how they are represented through writing, through drama, through community theatre and other cultural outlets. He's going to talk to us today about how that initial interest was sparked and how that spark is still reflected in his work today. Goremai got a cleaner as the quid ibra erin tra simul shaw Augustan query con kind to anew. My books and academic writing have been mostly on the area of Irish working class writing and more broadly on working class cultural history and how marginalised groups are represented in and represent themselves within Irish literature and through cultural means generally. So, for example, uh, recently I've been involved in publications and projects on theatre and exclusion, and I've also co-led a project with a local academic and community activist, Dr Fergal Makanrukti, in which we have been charting the history of what is undoubtedly one of the most successful cultural initiatives to come from a working class community on these islands, uh, Fela and Fubble, which is set here in West Belfast. And as part of that project, we produced a book of community memoirs, Fela Voices at 30, which is, was an amalgam of an academic and a community-led project. Um, we wrote the introduction and former um, and current activists and practitioners, writers, people involved in the festival wrote their recollections of their involvement over the years. What I'd be most well known for in my work as an academic at Queen's would be my books on working class literature. Writing Ireland's Working Class a decade ago, which came from my PhD thesis at Trinity College, and more recently the Cambridge University Press edited collection, A History of Irish Working Class Writing. The inspiration for this work, as I suppose with much academic work, was very much personal as well as academic. Studying modern Irish, no on Nua and English literature at Trinity, I became aware of the lack of academic work on how working class people appear in literature and how they have written themselves and indeed how they've used that writing from James Connolly and before him, not only as a form of self-expression but of activism as well. Coming from a working class background in inner city Dublin but also one of activism and of republican socialism, I had very mixed experiences in university. I know that many working class students have similar fish-out-of-water experiences. Class relationships are far more than mere designators of social positioning. They are sometimes the origins of deeply personal traumas and life-defining encounters that go far beyond the simply economic. Uh, Quite a while ago now, Richard Sennett and Jonathan Cobb argued in their study The Hidden Injuries of Class Class is not simply some sort of abstract idea or measure of economic inequality, but a lived reality of everyday life. They interviewed people who felt disrespected or undervalued because of their class. This was the burden of class, they said, 
through which working class people were deprived of any feeling of security and dignity, as they put it. And they wrote about how working class people felt demeaned in the eyes of others and of themselves, as they said, because social differences appear as questions of character, of moral resolve, will and competence. Think about the debate in recent days in the House of Commons about free school meals. A social problem is quickly moralised and individualised. Hunger isn't about resources, we're told, but about reckless and imprudent individuals making working class people feel ashamed of things like not being able to feed their kids is of course indispensable to the maintenance of inequality. Other sociologists such as Pierre Bourdieu and Beverly Skeggs for example have noted how these messages lead to feelings of internal division amongst their interviewees. They show how that's compounded by popular representations in the media, literature and elsewhere. Diane Ray has conveyed how much all of this is experienced psychosocially, uh, how much we internalise feelings of worthlessness and shame stemming from poverty. In one study, for example, she wrote of working class girls who had by the age of 10 felt they inhabited a psychic economy of class defined by fear, anxiety and and unease, a place where they are seen and see themselves as ray pusses, as literally nothing. Growing up in inner city Dublin, I of course instinctively knew about this sort of thing before I entered higher education, but I hadn't been introduced to the idea that it might be a valid or serious area of academic study. In university, I also became more and more aware of how class was little spoken of, but so powerful a barrier, actually, in higher education. I'll never forget one particular incident that drove this point home to me as a student. I had arranged one day to meet a friend of mine, a friend from inner city Dublin, for lunch. He said he'd come over to me and we arranged to meet at the Campanile, the iconic bell tower in Trinity College's front square. Around the time I went to meet him, I got a text to say that he'd been expelled from, expelled from university grounds and at first I thought this was a joke, he was that kind of character. When I rang him, he said he had been evicted from the campus for no reason and he was quietly fuming and he said he would never set foot in the place again. I was incensed, of course. I was involved in youth politics at this time, active in my community, writing for Unfublocked, and had a pretty strong sense of the class divisions in places like Trinity. So I made my way to the head of security's office, and there he explained to me that he had a report that my pal was acting suspiciously. He'd been loitering in the square with a bag on his back, I was told. I asked a man to leave his office and when we were outside I pointed to a range of people standing at university buildings with bags on their back. You know, I asked, are they suspicious? And he kind of conceded the point and brought me back to his office to explain um, that the staff who evicted my friend were new. I knew, of course, why they'd singled him out, because he looked and sounded like someone from inner city Dublin. Um, Though a similar age to most Trinity students, he he looked working class. With his haircut, his choice of clothing and no doubt, when they talked to him as working class accent, he was deemed suspicious. He'd grown up a stone's throw away, of course, from this place where thousands of tourists from far away flocked to every day. But when he entered it, possibly for the first time, he was immediately identified as a suspicious outsider. His experience that day was one of... um, of of, uh, the life-defining events that the less well-off encounter often in social welfare offices with teachers with authority figures. 
He, though amazingly considering his own lack of educational achievement till then, ended up on an access scheme in UCD a couple of years later. He had a very difficult upbringing with addiction all around him, but he had till then firmly rejected that trap and was very much anti-drugs and seemed like someone who might book the trend. But he dropped out of UCD in his first year there, um, finding the course too challenging and the environment alienating, and something I often think about as a university lecturer. And he very sadly died two years later, in his early 20s, having succumbed to addiction himself and I suppose suffering all sorts of mental anguish due to the sufferings and privations that blighted his youth. The priest at his funeral recalled that the last time he'd seen him, he was sitting on the steps of his rundown flat complex reading Lenin, imagining, I suppose, a better world. Such a contrast. And when I published A History of Irish Working Class Writing a couple of years back, I dedicated the book to him. It was because he was my pal, of course, but also because he personified and lived so many of the themes that working class writers dwell on. Prejudice and class, marginalisation, the wasting of talent, the harshness of life um, as an outsider, the pushing against those barriers all around him. The imagining of a better world by reaching out to people with similar experiences across time and space. What the working class writer often seeks to achieve, of course, um, was something that he'd done his fair bit of. Um, He'd done his bit to trying to put the world to right. I first encountered this sort of thing in literature, indeed the very concept of working class writing, in Professor Aileen Douglas's course at Trinity on British working class fiction. It had a profound effect on my subsequent direction in life and my understanding of class. Reading writers like Robert Tressel, George Gissing, Pat Barker, Irvin Welsh, I discovered a wealth of experience that resonated in various ways with my own, and this sparked my interest in the possibilities of an Irish tradition of working class writing. That led to a PhD on precisely that subject, which I soon realised had barely been considered as a possible category of scholarly research to that point. Writers like Sean O'Casey, Brendan Behan, Sam Thompson, Christina Reid, Danny Morrison from this area, for example, or Paula Meehan, were all studied in relation to various issues and genres and themes, but strangely, little or never in relation to each other, as part of a lineage of working class writing on this island. So I now have the opportunity to write and teach about this, which amazes me, and the great joy of seeing some of my own uh, students broaden the research area themselves. Scholars like Fergal Finnegan um, have drawn attention to the experience of working class people in universities, how class is felt in classrooms, social interactions on the curriculum and in other aspects of students' lives, how many of them uh, feel like they're imposters, how many experience comments or microaggressions that alienate them, that make them feel like outsiders. And I think uh, being able to read uh, other people who have experienced those things and to connect with them means a lot in that regard and to see it on the curriculum see those issues discussed in in universities means a lot too Um, the American academic Michelle Tokarczyk has written recently about being an academic from a working class background and um, discussed it in terms of being an amphibian as she puts it you can kind of create space and inroads that create space for more working class people she notes and more study of working class uh, history and life and politics of cu- and culture and of course uh, initiatives like the James Connolly Centre are part of this. 
to me, this is part of what makes working as an academic really interesting and enjoyable. A forthcoming co-edited book that I'm working on with colleagues, Churanjit Mann, Ben Rogaley and Sarita Malik, a book fittingly titled during this time as Creative, Creativity and Resistance in a Hostile World, is looking at how excluded or ex- oppressed artists, writers and cultural activists use creativity as a way of challenging the status quo right now in Britain, Ireland, Pakistan, India and Palestine. And I suppose at this point in time I feel that the arts and creativity and indeed academic work in the humanities are so important in making us rethink our societies and challenge a hostile environment for the left, for those who want a better world. I have the privilege of course of coming after two people in this series, Lawrence McKeown and Margaret Ward, who have spent their lives doing precisely that.